You know, I think it, it's true that um, almost everybody makes certain assumptions about Jesus and about the Bible and what we can expect from them, which is why when we come across a passage that doesn't square with those expectations, we're really surprised, and it really has an impact, and we, we can actually even be shocked sometimes by what we read in Scripture. One of the things that we likely don't expect to hear Jesus say is that there was a church that made him feel like throwing up. But that's exactly what he says in Revelation chapter 3, a text that deeply touched one of the members of our church, one of our ministry leaders here at Stonebridge, Let's have a listen. My name is Mark Swink, and the verse is Revelation three fourteen through 20. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may be clothed yourself, and the shame of your nakedness, nakedness may not be seen the salve to oint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now let me tell you a little bit about the book of Revelation before we look at that particular passage. The book of Revelation is a, kind of a collection of visions that was uh, recorded by the Apostle John. The Apostle John, one of tw Jesus' 12 disciples, he's sometimes called the beloved disciple, was also the author of the Gospel of John and three letters or epistles in the New Testament. John, at the time of writing uh, down of the book of Revelation, had been banished as a prisoner to the island of Patmos, where he received and then recorded these visions, as best as we can determine, probably somewhere around 95, 98, or to 96 AD. The early church, um, the history of the early church leading up to this period of time, uh, is really important for us to understand because it does put these words into context. The early church had suffered a series of vicious imperial persecutions under the uh, leaders of Rome. The first of these imperial persecutions, by the way, this was in addition to lots of local persecutions in you know, different, uh, different areas, but the first kind of empire-wide imperial persecution took place, was instigated, instigated by Emperor Nero in 64 to 67 AD. It was during that particular persecution that the Apostle Paul and, uh, and the Apostle Peter were both put 
to death. There was a second uh, imperial persecution uh, that may have, in fact, been even worse under Emperor Domitian. That took place in 95 AD, just before the book of Revelation was being written. And during that persecution, some 40,000 Christians were tortured and put to death. A third persecution would follow in just a couple of years under Emperor Trajan in 98 AD as Rome would continue its efforts to blot out Christianity. So these, the series of persecutions and people suffering, uh, seeing their family members suffer and die and so on, really is the context in which the book of Revelation is written. The book of Revelation was written then in part to offer hope and to offer perspectives to Christians who were experiencing this persecution. But persecution from the outside wasn't the only problem that the early church faced. The church was also showing signs that it was suffering from internal problems as well. And we see some of those problems uh, laid out in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, they're fascinating chapters to read. I really want to encourage you, uh, you know, this week, maybe after you get home from church, to sit down, open your Bibles, and read chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. Because what we find here are a series of letters that were dictated by Jesus to the Apostle John that are addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor that sort of uh, form a, a little circuit. These churches are... Ephesus, which was one of the largest and most influential churches in the ancient world, but they include Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, each of these churches is a little bit different. Two of these churches, as you read the letters, we discover two of these churches are faithful churches, but they are suffering from severe persecution. They're, they are Smyrna and Philadelphia. Three of these churches have kind of a mixed reputation. Um, Pergamum and Thyatira, for, for instance, are doing really good stuff, but they're starting to tolerate heresy. Ephesus, on the other hand, is theologically correct, but it is in danger of losing its first love. And, you know, you put that together and you realize, you know, we, we want to have churches that are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing and believing what they're supposed to, to believe. But two of these churches, two of these seven, are in terrible shape. They are Sardis and Laodicea. And the problem with both of these churches is that they believe themselves to, to be Christian, but they are pursuing pagan lifestyles. Well, these letters from Jesus to each of these three churches, again, found, found in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, are well worth reading. And they're, they're worth reading not only because of what they tell us about, you know, problems of churches in the ancient past, but also about problems that churches face today. Now, today, we are focused on Jesus' words to the Laodiceans. Laodicea was located at the intersection of two great international trade routes, one going north and south, the other going east and west, in the Lycus Valley of 
Asia Minor. You can see on the very right there, I put a little arrow to point to Laodicea. Uh, it was about 90 miles east of Ephesus. And one of the fascinating things about Laodicea, we know this from, what, from a couple of Paul's letters, is that Paul actually wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. We don't have it anymore. You know, just like we have uh, Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians and all that kind of stuff, there was a letter to the Laodiceans, but it was, uh, it's been lost to history and uh, obviously not considered important enough to be included in uh, the canon of, of Scripture. So while, you know, it would be interesting to read it, it doesn't really inform our theology. Um, back to this. Laodicea was founded by a Seleucid king named Antiochus II. And one of the things that's really important to know, if you want to understand Jesus' letter to the Laodiceans, it was a super wealthy city. It was known for three major industries. Uh, one was its financial or commercial industry. The second was its textile industry. And the third, its healthcare or medical industry. Uh, how wealthy was the, uh, the Laodicea? Well, when an earthquake almost completely leveled the city in 60 AD, the banks and commercial interests of Laodicea just took the money they had and completely rebuilt the city themselves, turning down earthquake assistance from the Roman Empire. Super wealthy. Can you imagine now if the bank said, you know, we've got enough... Uh, you know, give uh, relief to the folks in California suffering from the wildfires. That's not going to happen. But this is how wealthy they were, that they could do this. Now, uh, that's a, the, the kind of banking industry. Laodicea was, was also known for its textiles, particularly a, a soft, glossy, raven black wool that was said to get its color from the water that its sheep drank. Uh, it, and third, it was a well-known uh, medical uh, center. It had a medical school, an ancient medical school. One of the gods that were, was worshipped in Laodicea uh, was Asclepius. This is a, a statue of him. Um, and Laodicea was noted for its manufacture of something called collyrium. And this is an ingredient that was used in this eye salve that they produced in Laodicea that uh, presumably uh, was incredibly effective in terms of, of um, healing uh, eye ailments. The other noteworthy feature of Laodicea was the fact that it lacked fresh, clean drinking water. Uh, even though it was located in the Lycus River Valley, this, um, this river was so muddy that the water there was undrinkable. So the, the city's water supply had to be brought in from somewhere else. It traveled via aqueduct from the hot springs of Heropolis, a community about six miles away. Uh, and there are, it, you, you know, you can go to the ancient ruins of Laodicea now and you can still see the remains of the aqueducts and the pipes uh, that, that carried the water from the hot springs of Hierapolis to Laodicea. When it left, when the water left Hierapolis and these hot springs, it was really hot. 
But traveling the six miles uh, down to Laodicea, it arrived lukewarm, and it arrived so contaminated with impurities that it was almost as bad as like a river water. It was almost undrinkable. All of this stuff, as we will see, the reason I'm spending time talking about all this stuff isn't just because this is like a history lesson. All of this stuff informs our understanding of today's text. Now, he shift gears just a moment. I think it really surprises a lot of people when they discover, if they discover this, really surprises people when they discover that the book of Revelation is actually filled with loads of practical instruction and extremely relevant to our situation today. Most people get lost in the weeds in the book of Revelation and they, you know, they're reading about the trumpets and about prophecy and all the, this kind of stuff and really fail to see some of the crystal clear messages that we can find throughout the book of Revelation. And today's text is a case in point. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation are really, really pretty clear. And this text today that Mark chose is a wake-up call. It is so practical. It is a wake-up call to an overly comfortable church that is unaware of its true condition. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is telling this church, and I want to, want to offer as, um, as kind of a proposition this morning that when Jesus is speaking to the churches in Revelation, he is also speaking to the church today, and we need to ask ourselves, does that mean he's speaking to us this morning? In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea, and could he be telling us we need to really stop and realize our desperate condition? Stop and realize our desperate condition. Listen to this. Jesus says, I know your deeds. He's not talking about their beliefs, and uh, he's not talking about their love for one another. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. He says, I wish that you were one or the other. By the way, he's not saying, I wish you were unbelievers or anything like that. He just says, I I wish there was something here that it wasn't just tepid. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, you can see how Jesus is using the Laodiceans' water situation as an image to picture how he feels about the Laodicean church. It is lukewarm. He doesn't call it out for being heretical. If it had been heretical, he would have called them out for that because he calls out a couple of other churches for it. He doesn't call them out for being evil. If they had been, he would have called them out for that. But instead, he reserves his harshest criticism and his harshest words. Read these seven. This is the last, and and Jesus is harsh here. He reserves his harshest words for the seven churches of Asia Minor for the one that is lukewarm. 
Now, most modern translations, and one I was using, one Mark read from uh, earlier, most modern translations deliberately dial back the shocking thing that Jesus actually says to this lukewarm church in Laodicea. I, I don't know why Bible translators, you know, feel they, they need to protect us and, you know, use euphemisms and so on, but they do. Uh, the thing is that, that the Greeks actually had a perfectly good word that meant to spit. And I'm going to teach it to you today because it is so much fun. And I want us to repeat it. You ready for this? Because <laughs> it sounds like it. The Greek word for spit is pituo. Isn't that great? Let's repeat it. Pituo. I mean, it even feels a little bit like that. Um, Jesus doesn't use the word pituo. He doesn't say, I feel like spitting you out of my mouth. He uses another Greek word, emeo, E-M-E-O. If any of you are um, nurses or in, in medical um, care, uh, involved in medical care in any way, doctors, whatever, um, you may be familiar with the word emetic. What's an emetic? It's something that induces vomiting. That's the word Jesus uses here, emeo. He doesn't say, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He says, I am about to throw up. Now, gosh, how do you get to that point? You know, the church at Laodicea did not start out lukewarm. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I've known, uh, I'm familiar with lots of pastors, lots of churches, you know, throughout my ministry, and I can't think of, of a single instance of a church that actually starts out lukewarm, because if it started out lukewarm, nobody would join it. It would never take root. No one would be motivated by anything. The church at Laodicea didn't start out lukewarm, it became lukewarm. At one time, it must have had a vibrant faith and a compelling vision and a clear mission that all of its members were excited about and committed to. But over time, like the lukewarm water that flowed from Heropolis, it became tepid. It turned tepid. Its members, they continued to be professing believers. But for all intents and purposes, they were practicing atheists. They were practicing pagans. They were virtually, in, other than what they said they believed, they were virtually indistinguishable from their unbelieving friends. There have been some chilling studies that have been done about the church in America today. And one of the sobering findings of, of so many of these studies is that there's virtually, when, you know, when it comes to matters of, um, say, sexual ethics, how people uh, manage their finances, a, a whole variety of things that people who attend church and those who don't make almost identical decisions. And we ought to just stop and think about what that means. And here's the thing. The problem with uh, the church at Laodicea is not only 
uh, were they in this desperate condition? They didn't know it. They couldn't see it. Or maybe they didn't want to see it. So to break through this denial, Jesus says something that you don't expect Jesus to say. You know, this church that I love makes me want to throw up. That is an intention grabber. Now, in, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is telling the, the Laodiceans, and again, we have to ask this question, is he also telling us to recognize the ironic cause of this desperate condition? Because the cause of it is, so, it is just so ironic. You know what the cause of it was? The good life. All of the blessings that the church in Laodicea was enjoying uh, all of these blessings from God can actually tempt us to drift away from God. You, back to Jesus. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. Remember, they turned down earthquake aid from the Roman Empire because of their self Pride and self-sufficiency. I've acquired wealth and don't need a thing. Jesus says you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Um, Mother Teresa of, uh, of Calcutta as you guys know, she spent um, most of her life in the service of Christ, working um, amongst the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. Uh, outcasts, people who um, had nothing. And from time to time, um, she would be asked to travel to address international gatherings of, of ministry and church leaders and political conferences and so on. And one of the themes that she would bring up on a regular basis, she'd talk about the poverty, not of the people of India, but the poverty of the West. And by that she meant the United States and Western Europe. Christian nations. Because while the people of Calcutta suffered from material poverty, she believed that we suffer from a far more serious spiritual poverty. We suffer from spiritual poverty that we don't recognize, that we don't see, that we are unaware of, even though the symptoms of our spiritual poverty surround us. 
See, we just see the symptoms, and, and we think that the symptoms are the problems. They're just symptoms. There's an underlying issue, and it is our spiritual poverty. Why is there racism? Why is there sexism? Why are people uncivil to one another? Why do so many marriages fail? Why is there a, a crisis and, uh, of opioid uh, addiction in our culture today? All those things are connected. They seem like different problems. They're all connected. They all have an underlying cause, and it is our spiritual poverty. Uh, you know, it's amazing that, that Jesus would, would, would call the Laodiceans, who were known for their wealth and who were known for their eye salve and who were known for their textiles, what does he call them? these wealthy people. He calls them poor because they're spiritually poor. He calls them blind because they don't see their own condition. And he calls them naked because even though they're wearing this, you know, these incredibly expensive uh, woolen garments, that spiritually... They have nothing. This is biblical irony at its best. And it is, in my judgment, it is also an invitation for all of us to do a fearless moral inventory and get real honest with ourselves and get real honest with God to see if we have allowed our faith to become tepid and lukewarm because we have invested more in pursuing material blessings than we have invested in the things of God. See, in Revelation 3, the, the Lord is, is telling the Laodiceans, and might he be speaking to us as well, to receive what Jesus alone has to offer. Because they're all invested in all of this other stuff and they're missing the main thing, what Jesus alone has to offer. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Not this gold that you're storing up for yourselves that's fool's gold and will not have any kind of impact on eternity, but real gold. The, re the relationship with the Lord. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful na nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so, so that you can see. Again, the Laodiceans had been investing in the fool's gold of worldly wealth that had absolutely no eternal value whatsoever apart from its possible use in furthering the things of God. And they were walking around in the black wool of the wealthy, neglecting their call to live righteously. That's what white robes stand for in Scripture. 
living in a city known for, for the, the extraordinary medicinal quality of its eye salve, they were blind to their true situation. And that's what can happen when faith becomes lukewarm. When a church becomes lukewarm. It's really dangerous when a church becomes lukewarm because then uh, all of its members begin to uh, consider that as normative for the Christian faith. Oh yeah, all my other friends are you know, more interested in other stuff than worship or serving or giving. See, our, our relationship with the Lord becomes less and less important as we invest more of our time and more of our energy and more of our money in other things. And here's the real danger, all the while flattering ourselves that we have our relationship with the Lord all dialed in. And, and with a kind of a spiritual pride, not only do we have it dialed in, but Man, those unbelievers out there, they're such a mess, aren't they? Or those other churches there, they're such a mess. Or my own church, if only they did. The... See how pride just has this insidious way of, of working itself into our spirit. That's why Jesus was a lot more concerned about people's spiritual pride than he was about almost any other sin. Let's listen as Mark shares his story. I grew up in the church and knew God and believed in Jesus since a very young child. We went to the church most every Sunday. Um, and as I grew up and had kids, my wife and I and the family came to the church and I got very involved in the church. Um, I thought I was close to God, but unfortunately, as I look back, the truth is my relationship with God was very negative. I was very negative. I was judgmental, I was critical. I kept people to a high standard, myself to a high standard. Then about 10, 11 years ago, I went to a men's retreat and the pastor was speaking on this passage in Revelation 14 to 20. And on Sunday afternoon, I was sitting there listening to it and God just hit me upside the head and got my attention. When I was listening to that fact that I was neither hot nor cold and that Jesus wished that I was cold or hot, but the fact that I was lukewarm, that he was going to spit me out of my mouth. Me being a visual person, this just really repulsed me, and the fact that I thought I was close to God, but in fact realized, as I was honest with myself about it, that it was really far from God. The truth was, I lived for myself. I went to church and behaved one way. When I went home and to work, I behaved another way. So it was at that moment there I realized how far I was from Jesus and I asked for forgiveness and I repented and I just pledged to God that I would live for him for the rest of my life and that I needed him to work in me and change me and take away the selfish desires and stuff. Ever since then, um, over the years, he's done exactly that. Christ has transformed my heart and now I'm more loving, patient, kind, compassionate, filled with grace and mercy for people and just want to see people come to know Christ and to live a life and understand the freedom that Christ has done for us. So I've known Mark a really long time. 
a really long time. And I remember uh, the weekend that he was describing there. We had uh, breakfast a, a couple days after that weekend, and um, he shared that, that story with me. Uh, and I have to tell you something. Um, he is a different man. He's a completely different man. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is trying to get our attention. Because it is so easy to become overly comfortable. And so comfortable that we don't find, we don't, we don't see it when our faith just gets uh, more and more lukewarm. It's kind of the, the opposite of that story of the frog in the kettle. You know that, that story? I don't think it's true. Scientifically, frogs do jump out of hot pots. But the story is that if you put a frog in a, a cold pot and you gradually turn up the heat, they'll just stay there because they don't, you know, can't tell the, the change in temperature. And you can actually, you know, they'll die. Not true, but it's a great story and a great illustration. What Jesus is saying, uh, you know, when our faith becomes tepid, we die spiritually. And we're not even aware that it's happening. You know, Revelation chapter 3, the, the Lord is, um, is really inviting the, the Laodicea. It's despite this, you know, shocking picture of, of him, you know, vomiting. He's really inviting the Laodiceans, and I think by extension he is inviting us as well, to respond to him as a beloved child of God. Now, why do I say a beloved child of God? You know, you read this stuff and you go, man, I, you know, I must be on the outsides with God or, or whatever. I mean, it really is troubling to imagine that the problem that prompted Jesus to say that he was about to, to vomit was nothing more than the Laodiceans' lukewarm faith. I wonder, I'm going to repeat that sentence, and then I want to say something about it. It is troubling to imagine that the problem that prompted Jesus to say that he was about to vomit was nothing more than the Laodiceans' lukewarm faith. You know, when I was writing this message, I looked at that sentence and I went, wow, I just used the phrase nothing more than. My saying it was nothing more than being lukewarm it, you know, pointed out to me how easy it is to minimize something that Jesus takes really seriously. We might think that a lukewarm faith is not a big deal. It's a big deal to Jesus. Our relationship with the Lord is not meant to be an addendum to our regular lives, to our busy lives. Our relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is meant to be the center of our lives, the motivating factor of our lives, the main point of our lives. And everything else we do, 
ought to be in service of that and grow out of that. So Jesus challenges us with, with words that don't just surprise us, they shock us. They startle us. And why does he do that? Because he loves us. Listen up. Because he loves us. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I know a lot of you folks are, are parents. Some of you, you know, have kids that have grown. Some of you have, have little ones around the house. Let me tell you what a good parent does. They discipline their kids. I'm not saying they punish them or, or what. They discipline them. If you see your kid running out into the street, you would be criminally negligent not to stop them and not to sit them down and teach them, don't do that. You, you could kill yourself. You could hurt yourself really badly. You want to instruct them so that they will live long and healthy lives, so that they'll be blessed, so that they will be a blessing to others. And this is why Jesus is speaking this tough truth into our lives about the possibility of our having a lukewarm faith because he loves us too much to allow us to continue on that trajectory which ultimately leads to death without our even knowing it. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. God spoke a really tough truth into Mark's life because he loves Mark. And God will speak tough truths into our lives too only because he loves us. See, in the end, for, for all of its, its shocking imagery, Revelation chapter 3 is this invitation for us to really reconnect with the living God. Behold, Jesus says, here I am, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You know, the, the, the idea of dining with another person in the ancient Near East, even in the Middle East today, it's really a big deal. It's all about intimacy and fellowship and respect and care. Maybe the most shocking part of today's text, as if the part about vomiting were not enough, maybe the most shocking part of today's text is the fact that Jesus is addressing these troubling uh, words to the church. And when he says, behold at the door and knock, for, for centuries that verse has been applied to unbelievers. You know, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, open the door and let him in. And, you know, that it, it works, it's effective, people come to Christ, it's an easy symbol to understand. You know the door Jesus is knocking on? It's the door of the church, and he's standing outside and would love to be a part of what's going on.
It's amazing to imagine that you could have a church without Jesus really being present, that you could have a church without the Holy Spirit being at work. But it is, if we're only following our own dreams on our own power, now Jesus is speaking to believers who through their preoccupation with things and because of their pride and because of this attitude of self-sufficiency and, and I need to be control for all intents and purposes, this is a church that shut Jesus out of its life. And the real tragedy is that it didn't even notice his absence. Now there is, of course, I said earlier in this message that one of the things that's just so uh, remarkable about the book of Revelation is that it's so practical. And in all of this, there is something for us to do. And I want to invite us to do that this week. Uh, We can look inside. We can look inside and acknowledge to ourselves and acknowledge to God if our relationship with him has become lukewarm. We can look inside and we can acknowledge to ourselves and acknowledge to God if our pride has led us to believe that the problem with the church is out there or with them or with somebody and not with us. So instead of trying to fix the church, we need to fix ourselves because we are the church. And the church is only as good and only as faithful and only as effective as the sum total of its members working together in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that question that I love to raise from time to time, if every other member of Stonebridge Community Church attended the way I attend and worshiped the way I worship, and give the way I give, and serve the way I serve, would this church be the better for it or not? Because Jesus doesn't say if the church will open the door. He says, if any man or woman hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. It has to be done by individuals. With each one of us standing before God, honest to God, asking, is my faith lukewarm? Is there pride and self-sufficiency in my life? or the things of this world, for all intents and purposes, practically speaking, really more important to me. Charles Spurgeon says, the church will only get right by each person getting right. Has your faith grown lukewarm? I think it's time for us as a church of Jesus Christ and each of us as members of it 
to pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that those of us who are believers can find our faith reignited and our love of God put at the center of our lives once again.